Good morning. So good to uh, be here with you today. Uh, I started my day at the Crown Point campus, preached first service there, and jumped in the car and made it here for, uh, for second service, and now I get to be at, uh, at my favorite service, this service right here, with all my favorite people. Uh, if you didn't know, my name is Steve DeWitt. I serve as the senior pastor of Bethel Church, and uh, sometimes I get to be here, and uh, uh, many times I'm here digitally, but uh, my heart is here for sure, and my prayers are here uh, each week, and uh, I look around, I see many, many friends and friendly faces, and I'm uh, delighted to see God continuing to work in your lives. I am uh, here continuing our series in Romans today, and uh, delighted to do so. I'm going to start off by telling you about a funeral we had uh, some years ago, there was a man in our church by the name of Bob Brown, kind of a normal name, but this guy was an extraordinary uh, guy. Maybe you knew Bob Brown. He taught in the Crown Point school systems for like decades, so he was like a legend in uh, Crown Point, taught eighth grade, but he was one of these guys, every community has them, where he was like you know, the, the middle school football coach for like 50 years and the basketball coach for like 100 years and nobody could even remember when he wasn't doing that. And so over time, everybody got to know uh, Bob Brown. He was known for his object lessons in his classroom. So he, he died and it was a very large viewing and a very large funeral. And uh, I remember it in particular because Per his request, in the casket, between his hands on his tummy, he had, sticking out of his hands, a fork. All these people coming, walking by, of course, paying their respects. And you know, every one of them is walking past and going, what's with the fork? You know, but that's what he had. That's what he, that's what he wanted. Why did Bob Brown want a fork in his hand in his casket? Because when you go to somebody's house... And the hostess, as she's collecting the dishes, or you're collecting the dishes, if she says, keep your fork, what does that mean? Dessert is coming. The best is yet to come. And Bob heard that, and he said, that's what I want. And so he had a fork in his casket. And he might, I don't even know, they may be, he may have a fork in his hand to this day. Uh, I have no idea. But I say all of that because it's a good summary of the section in Romans 8 that we're in right now where basically Paul is encouraging Christians, keep your fork. The best is yet to come. Not dessert, but eternal glory. Now where would such a thought come from? And if you've read your Bible, you could say legitimately it comes from all over in the Bible, and indeed it does. The Bible over and over again urges us to see what lies ahead for us as being far better than what uh, in the world that we're living in right now. Jesus urged that. The New Testament urges that. The apostles urge that. They all urge Christians to keep their forks. And there are a few passages in the Bible that do it like the one we have before us today and, and next Sunday, frankly. Uh, because here in Romans 8, we come now to verse 18, and here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected, notice every verse starts with the word for here. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. May God bless his word to his people today. Amen. Okay, I'm going to have to work hard in this group right here. I read the Bible, you always say amen. Come on now. Amen. Amen. All right, you're with me. Good. So what we see in this text is a paradigm that he introduces in verse 17, namely this, suffer, then glory. Suffer, then glory. Paul's writing here to the church at Rome. It was not easy being a Christian in Rome 2,000 years ago. Remember, as we read this letter, we're kind of reading other people's mail, right? Paul writes to a certain group of people in a certain time and place. He's writing to Roman Christians in Rome, a city that uh, was not friendly to Christianity. In fact, the whole society wasn't friendly to Christianity. This is, I mean, ironically, Paul himself will be under arrest in Rome within a few years. So it was not easy to be a Christian in Rome. And so Paul writes to them, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so we begin now with just this very clear thought that Paul puts out there that our future is far more wonderful than our present. Our future is far more wonderful than our present. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody. This is for Christians. If you're a believer today, this truth is for you. For Christians, this is as bad as it gets right now. For unbelievers, this is as good as it gets. For Christians, we have eternal glory to look forward to. For unbelievers, it is not glory, but judgment and punishment. But for the believer, Paul is a pastor. He can write to people that were suffering and to encourage them. And I want this truth to encourage you as well today. Because right now, out loud, I want you to say the biggest trial in your life. Are you ready? I'm not going to do it, but just in case I did it, what would you have just said? Because I guarantee every one of us have a trial we're going through or a trouble we're going through or something in our life that we wish was different than the way that it is. And that is life in this broken world. That is life as a sinner in a sinful, fallen world. And Paul writes, hey, listen, we're groaning now, but it's glory to come. He writes elsewhere, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you hear the similarity there? He's saying basically keep your fork. The afflictions that we are that are described here, by the way, are not merely those that are like persecution afflictions, even though they include that. And Christians down through history have had much of that. But it's any affliction, any trouble that living in this broken, fallen world brings to us. And he draws a comparison. He says, 
The glory to come is so much more wonderful than all of the afflictions now. Someday we will look at it as being worth it. It will be worth it all, as the song says, when we see Jesus. Now, verses 18 through 22 focus on the redemption of the created world. And that is our focus today. And as some of you know, this is a theme that has been wonderful and, and, and a treasure in my own life. I, I've only written one book in my life, and it's on this subject. It's on the stunning beauty in the world around us and how it indicates what God is like, the beauty behind the beauty of the world around us. God is the created, wonderful, beautiful. God isn't created. The creator who is wonderful and beautiful in this world around us that the Bible tells us is not like it used to be. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation waits with longing? Like what's he talking about here? Are the, are the deer and the squirrels having private meetings when we're not looking, saying, oh, we can't wait for you know, the redemption of sons, like a far side cartoon. Some of you might remember far side cartoons where the animals are always sort of conspiring and doing things. Is it that sort of thing? No. What Paul is doing here is what the Bible often does, and that is to personify creation or to give human characteristics to creation. So for example, in the Psalms we have trees that are clapping their hands and mountains that are skipping like rams. Jesus himself at his triumphal entry when they tried to keep the children from crying out and singing said, if they stop, the rocks themselves may sing out. Now trees don't have hands and mountains don't skip like rams and the only music that rocks like is rock music. Are you with me? which they play at the Hard Rock Cafe, which with bread is called rock and roll. So I just, I'm a dad now, the puns, I don't know why it comes to you. It just, it like, you have a child and all of a sudden the world is a punny place. And I had fun writing that, but enough about music theory. Uh, I, I'll move on. So in Romans 8, it's the cosmos now, the world that is said to be, notice, waiting and eagerly longing. And the word there for eagerly longing, it's a wonderful Greek word, word because it means, it means literally to be craning your neck or to be up on your tiptoes. One of the Phillips translation says it that way, that all creation is up on its tiptoes waiting for the redemptions, redemption of the Son of God. What does that mean? Well, I imagine like of a wedding where the... You know, the bridesmaids have come in, everybody's come in, everybody's seated, they're all looking at their schedule and they recognize, hey, the next thing is the presentation of the bride. And in weddings, when everybody knows that, everyone starts looking, right? Sort of craning their neck, straining to see that moment when the doors open and here comes the bride. In this case, creation is straining its neck. It's looking to see, it's longing for the moment when the doors open and what? It is the revelation of the sons of God. All creation is waiting for the moment when our true identity is unveiled that we are indeed 
children of God. And that language harkens back to last week. We studied this amazing doctrine of adoption, where when God saves us, he doesn't merely move us from a place of being under his condemnation to where we're neutral, like I've just forgiven your sins and now we're, we're you know, there's armistice between us. No, he takes the further step and takes people that were his, in rebellion against him and places us in the family of God. So that right now, every true Christian is actually a son and daughter or daughter of the Most High God. We are adopted into the family of God. First John 3, 1, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we would be called children of God. We talked about it last week. I won't preach the sermon again, although I'd love to because it's so wonderful. Uh, the truth, not the sermon, the truth is wonderful. I had a couple families who are right here in the service who uh, have adopted and uh, shared with me how precious that truth is to them. Indeed, it should be to all of us to be adopted in the family of God. Right now, though, it's hard to tell. Like, I, you look around the room, or if we suddenly were, you know, at a ball game, you wouldn't be like, okay, there's a child of God, that one's not, that one is, that one's not. No. The redemption or the revelation of who we are is something that's yet to happen. For all the benefits of what it means to be a child of God, to be unveiled to all creation, that's what creation is waiting for and longing for. Final, future, consummation, the judgment of the world and the new heaven and the new earth. Paul explains this in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free, did you hear that? From its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now this may seem obvious, but let's make sure we know what creation we're talking about here. The creation here when you see that it's, it's separate from the redemption of sons, we see that it is all non-human creation. Everything God made up to Adam and Eve in the creation narrative is what it's talking about. So creation here is the animal world. It's the inanimate world. It's the galaxies. It's the molecules. It's the atoms. It's everything except us. This cosmos, as described here, is the one that is quote, subjected to futility. Do you see that? Now, when was the creation subjected to futility? Well, here now we need to understand the story, the big story of, first of all, of redemption, and then I'm gonna apply it to creation. But we've talked about this over the years at Bethel Church. It's known as the Christian worldview, and it's the basic big narrative story of redemption, which includes four scenes, four chapters. Go ahead and put them up if you would. And here they are. Creation, God made us and everything else. Fall, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. Death enters into the, into, uh, the human experience. We're under the judgment of God. Redemption is Jesus incarnate in the flesh. God made man who dies on the cross for our sins, paying the price for our guilt. Resurrected on the third day, conquering death, ascended to heaven, coming again. 
And then finally, consummation, which is Jesus' return, final judgment, new heaven, and new earth. This is known as what the Christ, is the Christian worldview. It's the big picture. And we've talked about this in the past, but I'll just submit to you again. Every young person here, and I see some of you, you, ought, you need to know that flat. Like, you got to have that down. So that when you take your biology class or you take your world civ class or mathematics, you understand how those things all fit into what God has done and what he's doing. And by the way, the old people here need to know it too. Because this is the story, this is God's story. And all of our stories fit into that story somehow. Your life is a little story in the big story. Our church is a little story in the big story of what God, what God is doing. This is the truth grid. These are the glasses, however you want to look at it. But how does this apply to the cosmos? And this is where Paul applies this suffering and glory paradigm. And I want to walk through this same story as it relates to the created order. So we begin with creation. The Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That didn't used to be controversial in churches, but it is now. God is a creator. This world was created by him. And Genesis 1, verse 31, tells us that after God had created everything, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That moment there is when God is the master craftsman steps back from everything that he has made and he looks at it and he says it is excellent it is morally excellent it is aesthetically excellent it is excellent in all of the purposes that God had for it which we find in the Bible a primary purpose God has for creation is that it is a mirror of what he is like it is a kind of divine self-portrait of what God is like. Now, God is spirit, as we know. The world is physical, right? This is a physical world that we live in. So how can a physical world reflect a spiritual God? Well, this is the mystery of God's creativity. But the Bible tells us that it does so. For example, we saw this in Romans 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, where? In the things that have been made. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God made this physical world to be a, a physical expression of what he is like spiritually. And it is good enough at doing that that Romans 1 tells us nobody will ever get to heaven and say, I never heard the gospel. I'm not guilty. God's going to say, I was speaking to you every day in the sunrise and in the sunset and in everything else you were experiencing, men are without excuse. The created order is a kind of revelation, a condemning revelation to sinners who do not trust and believe. Now, we also must emphasize the fact that we are theistic creationists. This world, while what God is like, is not God. That's pantheism. And there's world religions that practice pantheism. 
But we believe God transcends the world. The world is a very close reflection of what he is like, but it is not God. God is God, not the world that he made. So Adam and Eve, placed into this beautiful paradise where everything is in harmony with everything else, the animals aren't eating each other. The animals aren't eating Adam and Eve. You know, the world is just in harmony with God and with one another. What a wonderful spot that was. Which leads to the second scene in this story of creation, which is the fall. Adam was the representative head, not only of Eve, but also of creation. God says to Adam, it's known as the cultural mandate, you are to multiply and fill the earth. You are to steward the earth. You are to garden the earth. God gives to Adam the responsibility of naming the animals. So we see in this that Adam was the representative head, the pinnacle of creation, bearing the image of God. And what that means then is when Adam and Eve sinned against God, as we've seen in Romans, not only were we did we sin with him as our representative head? We come to find out that creation also fell. As this passage is telling us, creation also now comes under a curse. Where is that? Here's the moment, Genesis 3. And, Adam, and, he, and God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Notice, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. Did you hear that? Cursed is the ground. Now I grew up going to church, and I remember flannel graph in Sunday school. Anybody remember flannel graph? Anybody remember flannel graph? Okay, three people. That's great. Uh, the young people are like, flannel graph, what is that? Flannel graph, it was like Stone Age stuff where we, you'd, you'd stick it, you know, a picture to something soft and it would help tell the story. That's called flannel graph. I remember flannel graph, learning about the fall and the fact that because of the fall, now he had to like, he had to farm in a harder way. The ground wasn't going to be quite as fertile as it was before and that that's what it meant that the ground was cursed. And that is true. But what we find in Romans 8 is not only was the ground cursed, the galaxies were cursed as well. And everything in between now is subjected, as he says here, to futility. Death enters into the created order. Now animals are eating one another. And now weather becomes dangerous. And things that were beautiful now can kill you. You can be standing on the shore looking at the ocean and admiring the view and then get killed by a tsunami. That's the thing, you know, oh, look, it's so pretty, the lightning, zap. Weather, the world, animals, disease. Where did disease come from? Disease came from Genesis 3. The ache and pain that you have in your body right now, where did that come from? It came from Genesis 3. Mosquitoes, where did mosquitoes come from? They were not in paradise for sure. They came as a result of the curse, no doubt. So when God cursed the ground, he cursed all creation. Again, for the creation was subjected to futility and is in bondage 
to corruption. From that point on, it's no longer what it was. It's not safe like it used to be. Now you have wilderness and wild animals and things that are happening that never happened before. The earth is less beautiful than it was. It's less fertile than it was. It's less flowering than it was. It's less lush than it was. And now human beings, rather than stewarding the garden, will exploit it. That's the fall. Cursed is the ground. All right, we continue in our story to chapter 3, which is redemption. In redemption, Jesus takes the curse of God on the cross. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, or if you just took communion in our service, I'm going to guess you've probably heard that verse before, or at least the concept. That when Jesus died on the cross, he took the curse of God against our sin upon himself. Now, we use language like Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus redeemed us from, uh, from, from sin. But effectively, what Jesus was doing is he was becoming a curse in our place. And when we talk about that, 99% of the time we talk about how that's true as it relates to us. And that's fine because that's the emphasis of the New Testament. But we find here in Romans 8 that the curse of God upon the ground was also something that Jesus redeemed when he died on the cross. That God's plan of salvation is to take back everything that Satan and sin brought into this universe. That God is not going to give Satan one inch of one galaxy anywhere, ultimately. So he takes the curse and makes a way for creation itself to no longer be under the curse. And Paul personifies this as creation waiting. Again, the text, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage. And hope in the New Testament is not the kind of like, well, I hope my team wins in the tournament or something like that, wishful thinking. No, hope in the Bible is confident assurance. Creation is not hoping that it's going to be redeemed. It knows it's going to be redeemed and is longing for that moment when its redemption will come. That is hope. And this is one reason, by the way, the Christian view of nature is so much better than evolution and naturalism, which has no hope for the world other than us saving it. It's a kind of nihilism where we are the ones that must save the planet. In their worldview, there is nothing more than this world, and so it's all that they have, and so they venerate it, and they worship Mother Earth or Mother Nature. They lift it way higher than it ought to be. There's no hope in that. The hope of the Christian worldview is not that we save the planet, but that Jesus saves the planet. And we steward it until he comes. And I would submit to you that we have far more reasons to be stewards of this earth than any atheist or agnostic ever does. Why? Because this is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. 
Why do Christians care about the world around us? And why do we not exploit the natural order? Because this is, not, this is God's world. And we've been called to be stewards in it. And I've had more time to get into how that ought to be. And maybe someday I'll do a little series on that. So we love the world. But unlike the atheists, we don't worship it. Okay? We don't worship it. We see creation groaning. That's the word here. That creation groans like a woman giving birth. Now this is something I happen to be an expert in. <laughs> Said no man in the room right now. Uh, but I am a little bit better at this than I, than I was 10 years ago when I was single, having gone through two birthing, uh, birthing rooms and birthing experiences. Uh, every woman who has ever given birth knows what the birthing groan is. Somehow my five-year-old daughter has it in her mind that, that she's, she's decided she's not going to be a mommy someday because somebody told her it hurts. It hurts. Apparently this hasn't stopped my, uh, my, my three-year-old daughter from dreaming a little bit, though. I took this picture a few... <laughs> this was just a couple weeks ago. Oh, so we're, uh, we're going to be grandparents of septuplets, as you can tell there. She is great with child. They have a lot of fun with that. I, I thought about, I actually have video, I thought about using it, it didn't seem appropriate, but I have video, they actually go through a birthing, like Kirley's giving birth, and you know, man, come on, and she's, ah! I, where do they get this stuff? I don't know, probably those, those ill-minded boys at school, probably doing that to them. But I'll never forget when, uh, when our oldest was, was, we were giving birth, and the doctor came and said to my wife, Jennifer, said, you know, it's not coming real well, you know, if things don't change, we might have to do a C-section, and, and I remember my wife, Jennifer, she just got this look on her face, and she said, oh, this child is coming, and she just reached down from somewhere men do not have, <laughs> and she pushed that precious little baby out, but she groaned while she did it. The groans of a woman giving birth, it's a powerful picture. What are the groans of creation? Earthquakes are the groans of creation. Genocide is the groans of creation. Disease is the groans of creation. We have violence in the animal world, extinction. What pain or your body not working so well today is a groan of creation. This world is not what it was when God made it. It's not what it's going to be someday. And it knows that, and it's waiting for the moment when it's set free again to bloom and blossom and be what it was made by God to be, or what Paul says here, to obtain the freedom of the glory of God. Which brings us to the fourth and the final chapter in the story, which is consummation. Consummation, this creation renewed by God. What does creation set free look like? Well, it looks, it, apparently it looks a lot like what it looked like before Adam and Eve sinned. It looks like that paradise 
once again, because the prophecies about what this world is going to be like sure sound a lot like that. Let me give you a few. Here's Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I had to look it up. It's a flower. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. It's a powerful picture. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What's it going to be like someday? It's going to be like that someday. And depending on your eschatology, your doctrine of last things, where you will place when this is happening, but here's what everybody agrees with. Someday, that's what it's like. Someday, this creation is going to be renewed. It is going to be restored, and our eternal home is there. And I just think there's so many Christians that misunderstand this. So let me make it very clear. You don't spend eternity in heaven. We don't. Where do we go? We spend eternity on the new earth. This restored, revived, renewed paradise is where we live. This is why God resurrects our bodies. We spend eternity in a body, a glorified body, in a glorified place. Friends, you don't want to miss it. You do not want to miss what it means to live forever on the new earth. We live on the new earth. It is a kind of paradise restored. Someday, and some of the, some of the verses in, would, would seem to indicate that you know, this, whole, this whole cosmos is burned up and then God makes a new one. But even the Greek words there could mean that God, rather than burning it all up, he just, it's like the biggest fixer-upper ever, right? Where God takes all of the fragments and the brokenness and he just renews it and revives it and then just infuses it with beauty that only can come from God. But someday God is going to recreate this cosmos and everything that we love about this world will be there, and nothing that we hate will be there. Listen to uh, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, which all of you should read. We should make that required reading. To, be, to become a member of our church, you have to read the Chronicles of Narnia. Read them. The last book, which is called The Last Battle, at the end of The Last Battle, Lewis uses the narrative to describe the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia. I quote now, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes 
it looked a little like this. I remember thinking, I've had one chance to walk Augusta National Golf Course, where they play the Masters Golf Tournament. And I, I mean, I've never been anywhere like it. It is just breathtakingly beautiful. Uh, the hills and the landscape and the landscaping, and it's like, you know, every blade of grass is immaculate and doing exactly what they want it to do. It is just and I remember thinking as I was walking around, I thought, this is as close to the new earth as is to be found on this one. Like, it's just everything was perfect. And I'm going to guess that you maybe have had moments like that in your life. When out of the blue, almost all of a sudden, you'll see, like the sunset will capture your attention. And the red and the pink and the purple, all of a sudden you'll just look at it and something is stirred inside of you. Or you happen to see the deer running through the field, or you happen to catch, you know, your, your child looks at you a certain way, and there's just something inside that hearkens to an ancient time when everything was as it's supposed to be. Have you had that? Maybe bring that moment to your mind. And here's what Paul is saying to us today. Keep your fork. Someday, everything is going to be right again. Someday, all that is broken in this world is going to be made a right again. Someday, the king is going to come, and this creation is going to be renewed and restored. And, and get this, let this settle into you here in Indiana in March. No more winter. No more winter. No more polar vortexes. No more struggle against Weather. I got thinking, you know, this is the week of spring break. I'm convinced half our church is in Florida right now, including, I think, maybe your campus pastor. I think he might be sloughing off, but I digress. Uh, what do they do in spring break in the new earth when you're already in a place of total perfection? <laughs> Nobody has to go anywhere to get out. Oh, I got, we got to get away from this. No, no, everywhere you are is absolutely perfect. The beauty and wonder of the new earth. But I'm here to tell you that the true beauty in the new earth is not going to be lions laying down with lambs, or weather, or the food, or no more death, because the greatest wonder and beauty on the new earth is forever Jesus. And that you and I get to know him and be known by him will be the beauty that we will never, ever get over. And friend, I just want to say to you, will you be there? Will you be there? This is not a promise for everybody. This is a promise for the genuine children of God. Have you come to the point in your life where you have seen Jesus not merely as a historical person or an interesting religious figure, but you see in him actually who he is, that he is God made flesh, dying on that cross, not just for generic sins, but for my sins and bearing my guilt, and seeing him walking out of that grave in his resurrection and realizing that he conquered death forever, not just death conceptually, but my death. Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Because I'm here to tell you, what God has in store for those that are his, you don't want to miss. And here's just one more of those things. 
And that is the place and the space we get to enjoy forever, the renewed cosmos. You do not want to miss it. And if you're a Christian here today, it's just one more reason to, to be speechless at the grace of God and the love of God, to realize none of us deserve that. We deserve hell. There's no renewal in hell. There's nothing beautiful in hell. That's where we, are, we deserve to go. But God in his grace gives us heaven and the new earth forever. You don't want to miss it. Are you going to be there? And if not, why not trust in Christ today? Why not? Why not? It's unfortunate that we sing joy to the world at Christmas. And we'll continue to sing it. Okay, fine, fine. But it's unfortunate because the song actually is not about the first coming, but is about the second coming. And I want you to listen to these lyrics through the grid of Romans 8. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. Joy to the cosmos. The Lord has come. Can't wait. Can't wait. Hope to see you there. Amen.